If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to page 2, to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to read verses 18 to 25 here in a moment, right? So we are in this big sermon series looking at the big story of the Bible, and we're slowing way down in Genesis 1 to 3 because as you get your mind wrapped around what Genesis 1 to 3 teach, it's, it's the framework for how to read the rest of the story and what's going to happen. So this is our last week in Eden or at least where everything goes well. <laughs> um, and we're just getting oriented. What is the ideal life? What, is, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a human in relationship with the living God who loves us? And what we're going to see in a moment is it's going after your imagination. Imagine what it would be like to be shameless, meaning have no shame in your relationships. <laughs> and so that's, that's what we're going to read about here in a moment. So let's read God's word, and we'll pray and talk about this. This is the word of our God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven, heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this is God's word. Um, it's true and trustworthy, and he's spoken to us in love. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray you would show us, Jesus, uh, the, better, the better Adam, the true and better bridegroom, the one who looks at us, his church, and says, at last, you get to love you with an everlasting love. And so I pray, Lord, send your spirit so that we would know what that means to be loved, and we would experience it in our hearts, and that, would be, that your wedding day love would become a power that changes us and equips us to not only have our shame covered, but to cover the shame of those around us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. That last line is almost taunting us in light of what we know about what it means to be human. I mean, just imagine what, it, what could have been if in your relationships, in your friendships, in your family, in your marriage, uh, or even in the desire to be married, to not have shame, to be fully known and fully loved, and to never have that impulse to want to run and hide. <laughs> and one of my favorite stories about hiding comes, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's, it's a, a story about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, right, the author Sherlock Holmes, and he writes to a whole bunch of colleagues in positions of power, I think even maybe a, a bishop. And he just sends this letter, it's real, real short, it says, all is known, all is discovered, flee. 
<laughs> and the next day, they all disappeared, never to be seen from, right? Didn't even have to say what it was, but they had skeletons in their closet. <laughs> and it's so human, because what would you do if you got that letter, right? Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, just imagine having no kids competing to be the favorite in the family. Imagine Twitter being a safe space to have conversation without being roasted. I mean, when was the last time shame made you feel like life would be a lot less complicated if you were just left alone? See, as we jump into this text, human beings in imitation of Adam and Eve have continue to seek to cover their shame, to deal with their loneliness, to deal with the not goodness of being alone, so often through the love of another person, and so often it's gone way off the rails. Right? This is what uh, Mike Cosper writes, that human beings have this longing and for love and companionship. It's just hardwired into who we are, into creation. And it's part of the actual design of the world that the emotions behind it have incredible power and sway over how we live our lives. I mean, just think about it. People do crazy, horrible, sad things, all in the search to be loved. He says they shipwreck their lives, chasing fantasies, lying to themselves in, in the hope that one day the right person will finally make them happy. And so we're going to look at the first wedding even though it's an ideal, <laughs> Eden is still controlling our hearts and, and that longing for love. So let's, let's jump into this because it's pointing to a greater wedding, one that actually heals our shame. So first, let's look at, it's not good to be alone. Right? That's verse 18. It's jarring, right, that the Lord God says it's not good that man should be alone. I mean, as you're reading Genesis 1 and 2, it's supposed to sound like nails on a chalkboard, right? Because everything has been good, 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 very good. And then all of a sudden you have this loud, wait, it's not good. Right? How in the world can it be not good in paradise? Right? And yet, this is the humility of God. He designed Adam in paradise, in relationship with the living God, to be incomplete without other human beings, other human relationships, without someone else to love. Right? So if you're a human, everyone in the room is, I'm assuming. <laughs> right? It's a giant if. We're designed for friendship. We're designed for fellowship. We're designed for this close, intimate, naked and unashamed kind of community. It's not good to be alone. There is no very good of day six without the creation of woman. Right, so just the ideal of Eden is hum humans, male and female, one flesh, united in shameless relationships. And we're going to talk, we're going to zero in on marriage in a moment, but, but just think about that. I know we have single people and married folks in the room, and so we can, we can broaden the scope Right, this is aimed at marriage, sure, but it's aimed at human relationships. That's the way the rest of the Bible uses it. Right, for example, Proverbs uses the language of Eden to talk about what a friend should look like in Proverbs 18.24. Right, a person, 
of many companions. You've got lots of people around you. They may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, who glues themselves to you even closer than a brother. Right? And that word for sticking closer, right, a friend, a neighbor, is the same word used to describe Adam uh, cleaving or holding fast to his wife to become one flesh. And so I think it's fair to say that the Eden ideal is for marriage as well as friendships. That what we need in our, in our loneliness is a friend. That's what makes marriage good if you're actually married to your friend. right? Someone who knows you, loves you, and enjoys you. We need someone to glue themselves to us, to hold fast to us through thick and thin, through the good and the bad, uh, to see us in our nakedness, so to speak, and to not shame you, <laughs> right? To not run away, to not go, ugh, I'm done, I'm out, peace, right? And so that's why when relationships fall apart, why separation hurts so much is because we're designed for this connectedness. We're going against our design. If I were to take a stapler and use it as a hammer, right, and just start beating the nail over and over again with the, the stapler, the stapler is going to feel the pain of going against what it's designed for. It's going to fall apart unless it's a really good stapler. <laughs> but it's the same for you and I, right? When, if you use relationships, uh, when they fall apart, when, we, when they're broken, when they go against what they're designed for, it's like hitting a, a nail with a stapler. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt us. And so right there in verse 18, when it says, it's not good for man to be alone in paradise, God graciously and humbly is showing us we're designed for one another. We're designed to not be alone. Right? We're, we're hardwired for connection, as one person puts it, to connect with others. That's what gives you purpose and meaning. And if you don't have relationship, if you don't have connection, it's suffering. Right? If you don't have a friend, if you're lonely, it's suffering. So, Let's pause here and apply this, right? If it's not good to be alone, and we want to connect the dots to what we've talked about before, about human beings designed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, what is Genesis 2 hinting at about the connection between relationships and being fruitful? Adam can't do it alone, and neither can we, right? can use a, a tree metaphor. We're, we're surrounded by trees in Eden. Right, there's a great book called The Hidden Life of Trees by a, a, a forest manager. And he describes just through years and years of observation, right? This is his job just to love trees. How trees actually communicate and support one another. Right? Because you tend to think you look at a, a lonely tree all alone in a field, he doesn't have to share. Right? can hoard all the sun can hoard all the nutrients, all the water, everything there. It's, it's for the good of the tree if he's alone. But researchers have figured out that, uh, especially in beech and oak forests, they're actually more fruitful when they're all connected really close together. Because when one gets sick, 
the stronger trees, the healthier trees, the one with more nutrients, they actually, through the root system, <laughs> because they're so connected, feed the weaker one. Right? Meaning neighboring trees, when they're surrounded by lots of trees, are more fruitful when they're not alone. Right? So you can see the spiritual analogy there that that you can't be spiritually fruitful alone. It's not good for human beings to, to be alone because you can't bear fruit by yourself. Right? You add fruit of the, the fruit of the Spirit to the, the word picture here. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Let's just imagine you, the solitary tree, growing the fruit of love. Who's supposed to benefit from the fruit of the Spirit? All of the fruit of the Spirit are relational in nature. Sure, God changes you with the gospel and makes you a loving person, and that's phenomenal, (laughs) to which the world rejoices that Jesus is at work in you. But the benefit of bearing fruit is what it does for others, and we're not designed to do that alone. We're designed to do that in community in life and in the church. I mean, the very opposite of the fruit of the shame, if you're in Galatians 5, are those things that divide us. Enmity, hatred, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Right, those are the anti-fruit. See, it's not good for humans to be alone. And so when... God takes Adam and Eve, and right, this is a seed form here, and says, I want you to work together, have children, continue to work together, multiply, fill the earth with my goodness. Um, He's saying you can't do these things alone. It's not good for us to be alone. So you know what the church is designed to be? I'll put it this way. We are called to be like the Garden of Eden, in a shame-filled wasteland in the way we love one another <laughs> because Jesus is among us. Right? God doesn't send you out to do this stuff alone. He puts you in a community with friends, uh, with a spouse, with your kids. Right? To be a, we want the church to be a place where shame is covered, where the unlovable are loved. And so the question is, do you have that kind of friendship, that kind of connection in the local church community. Right? This is God's gift to you because it's not good for humans to be alone. Right? So we applied the friendship piece. This means this is for single to married. Let's zero in on the first marriage, right? How is Adam blessed by the first marriage? All right, so it's not good for Adam to be alone. So the Lord God says, okay, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And then uh, Adam goes through the, the, the speed dating with the animals, right, where he just progressively figures out these, peop- these things are not for me. Um, it's, it's, like he's, it's like God's leading him along and saying, I want you to feel that longing. I want you to know that you need to not be alone, to have another human being to love. Even as he's going about the kingly work of imitating God, naming the creatures. But in that process, right, Adam found no helper fit for him. He's feeling the not goodness of, of being alone. He's incomplete. 
And so God forms a woman for the man. And so what does it mean for the woman to be a help, a helper fit for man? This is a pretty big, big deal here. First, notice this. For a woman to be a, a help, help is a strength word. It's a strength word. Often it's used to describe God himself in military context where God comes and is Israel's help to do for Israel what they could never do uh, on their own. And so God has the audacity to say, Adam, I'm giving you a woman to be a help, <laughs> to be an easer, to give you strength, to complete you, because you can't do these things by yourself. Right? So women are designed in this context to be a help for, ad, for, for men, um, right? in the context of marriage. <laughs> Second, to be fit for him is trying to make sense of the literal translation of where woman is designed to be like opposite Adam, right? That is, that is the literal translation, that, that she is fit for him. She's like him, but opposite him. So the nature of marriage <laughs> is to be a source of strength, to be God's help, but you get to do that as people who are different. You're like each other, you're both human, but you're not the same. Right? If anyone's ever been married for any length of time, you're just like, yeah, that's really obvious. <laughs> right? It's what happens that first year of marriage, you think you have this conception of what life is going to be like together, and, and your spouse is going to agree with everything you say, and turns out they see the world differently and have a different way of processing things. Right? But that's by design. Because if you have someone who sees the world differently, you now have two people with two different kinds of wisdom, if you will, coming to be one. And so the longer I'm married, the longer not only do I see the world the way I've always seen the world, uh, I also now am being equipped by Bethany's wisdom, and hopefully her with some of mine. <laughs> right? We're married. But you're you're you go into a situation where God is saying, you have a helper. You're not alone. Like opposite, they're complementary to each other, if you will. Kind of like a puzzle piece, right? They're designed for each other, and they fit together, but they don't look the same. And then you could add this about, about women, right? Derek Kidner is a commentator. He's really helpful, and he says that the naming of the animals is showing Adam ruling as a lonely king. And he show, it's showing that Adam's not made just for power. He's made to love someone else because it's not good to be alone. And so when the woman is presented to Adam wholly as his partner and his counterpartner, and nothing yet is said of her childbearing. She's just valued for who she is and her help for Adam. Right. The woman is celebrated. Now, how is she formed? Well, the Lord God puts Adam into a deep sleep, and he takes a rib from his side. He forms the woman, he makes her, and then like a father walking the bride down the aisle, he presents the woman to Adam. And that's when you get that first bit of romantic poetry here. At last. Right. This is the one I've been waiting for is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's like me, but she shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of man. She's different than me. But both are made in the image and likeness of God. And see, what Adam's doing there is he's exploding in delight and joy and saying, at last, this is the one I've been made for. She's like me, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But different, right? And, the, and there's Hebrew wordplay, right, where the man's name he's, is an ish. She's an isha, right? She be, shall be called woman isha because the, the isha was taken from the ish. <laughs> right? You can hear how closely related they are. And that's where you get this, the, the statement about marriage. It's designed to be close. It's designed to be one flesh where you share every nook and cranny of your lives together naked and unashamed. Right? That's how close marriage brings you. Uh, it's exclusive. Leave your father and mother and cleave and hold fast to your wife. The wife is to be a greater loyalty to than that of the parents. Right? You're forming a new family unit. It's lifelong. That's how Jesus describes marriage, because he says, uh, have you not read from the beginning? That got the, he who created them from the beginning made a male and female, and they should leave the father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Right? God is joining them together. Don't, don't, don't break it, because if they're one flesh and it breaks... If they're one body, that's like an amputation. It's, it's going to hurt. So, this is the ideal. We're in Eden. This is how the world ought to be where married people are naked and unashamed and, and you have friendships where you're known and trusted and, and you feel safe. There's no shame and it's all very good. And I know because we're human, shame is already in the room, just suffocating, really. Right? Maybe you feel exposed to where your views of marriage or your experience of marriage or your experience of human relationships just don't line up. Right? You can think of unwanted singleness. You can think of divorce. You can think of just ongoing disagreements in marriage, right? where you may be one flesh on paper, but... Uh, that, that gift of being different is now a bone of contention between you. Right? Rather than the differences in our relationships making us stronger, wiser, able to grow together, we're just irritated. And then you add our cultural context where there's all kinds of views on marriage and what it is and what it's for. Um, where, where loving one another is the ideal that people are aiming for. Right? I mean... Gay marriage is now the law of the land in our, in our state. To quote one celebrity, anyone who doesn't believe anyone can and should get married, if you don't appreciate it or approve it, you're just ignorant. Right. And then you add Genesis 2 loving Christians who are saying, but this is what God said, and the Bible's a true story, and marriage is designed for a man and a woman, and you start to see that having any kind of conversation about marriage, sexuality, without shame, shuts down the conversation. <laughs> it makes it difficult. I mean, have you experienced that tension of just trying to communicate what the Bible says about marriage, about friendship? So a couple thoughts here as we're wrestling with the reality that we're not unashamed. Um, 
The conversation about what is marriage for? Who is it for? Right? I was really helped by uh, Richard Lovelace, a, a seminary professor, and he says, you know what this conversation needs to be friends? Right? What it needs a, a healthy dose of double repentance. Meaning, uh, Jesus following, Christians battling same-sex desire need to repent ongoing of their homosexual desire. Uh, but those particular sins. And, right, this is a double repentance, and the church needs to ongoing, <laughs> never-ending repentance of the homophobic mistreatment of our, our homosexual neighbors. Right? Let's put it this way, if God's kindness leads to repentance, the church should lead the way in our kindness covering the shame of those we disagree with. Right? Jesus ate with sinners. Do we? Do we have that attitude where we're gracious? Right? And, and I know even just saying a few of those things, depending on what point of view you come with on what marriage is for, um, shame is just there. And this is the logic of the way the story of the Bible communicates is that shame infects every human relationship, no matter who you are, if you're in Adam. Right? And it pulls us apart. It doesn't draw us together. Right? So let's, let's talk about that. <laughs> what, what this is after in verse 25, that the man and wife were naked and unashamed, and we're ashamed. We can't even talk about it. Right? Because one... It's helpful to make a distinction. Guilt is I did a bad thing, right? I've broken the law. I'm guilty. Shame is saying I am a bad thing. It's different. You know, one is I've done bad. Two is I'm defective. That's shame. And because every human being is saying I'm defective, I'm wrestling with feeling unlovable, will somebody please out there accept me for who I am? What it does is lead every human being to be tempted to turn our relationships into what the Bible calls idolatry. Asking another human being to love us the way only God can love us. And all kinds of chaos flows out. <laughs> all right. Let me read you a letter from Pastor John Newton, the, the author of Amazing Grace, and he's writing to a newlywed couple. This is really interesting. So after a lot of congratulations, right, it's not all depressing. <laughs> He writes, O oh Lord, save us from the wonderfulness of marriage. Right? And he says, he's married too, right? So, <laughs> and these letters were published for his wife to read. Uh, marriage has been one of the best gifts, but perhaps your chief danger would lie in being too happy. And then he goes, beware of idolatry. I have smarted for it. It has hurt me because I still have this tendency towards the covenant of works. It's still cleaving to me. I'm trying to use marriage to cover my shame is what he's saying. All right? So you start to think this through. Last week was the covenant of works, that every human being is hardwired to feel like I have to be perfect and personally obedient to get back into Eden. And that doesn't go away. We just try and fill that hole somewhere else. Here... What I think we're talking about in marriage, right? The, 
Every human being is trying to use other people to make ourselves feel lovable, to cover our shame, especially when it comes to romantic love. We want someone to like us, not just like us, enjoy us, celebrate us, make life worth living. Right, the problem with that is the human institution of marriage can't bear the weight of telling another human being, you have to make me lovable. <laughs> you have to make my life worth living. No human institution can do that. Right? And the Bible will actually go on to say that humanity's biggest problem is not the behavior, it's the ways we've broken the covenant like Adam, and it, it calls our idolatry, our love of good things, spiritual adultery. That every human being, like Adam in the garden, has betrayed the married covenant love of God by using other people or something else in creation to cover our shame and make us feel lovable. What is that for you? (laughs) See, everyone's battling with that reality. I want someone to see me down to the ugly depths of my being and tell me I'm lovable. That, that's what happens when you're, you remember this, you are in school, right? You talk to the students. What that happens when you walk into the cafeteria in middle school and somebody looks at your clothes and say, what are you wearing? How could you wear something like that? Right? And sometimes those things aren't even said out loud. It's just, uh, that's what we think they're saying, <laughs> which tells you how deep shame goes. Right? And so then we turn to our friends and say, well, I just want you to like me. And what matters more is what you think of me than what God thinks of me. And the Bible calls that reality spiritual adultery. The way it works out with Adam and Eve, right? Adam listens to the voice of his wife rather than the voice of God. I'm assuming in love and wanting her acceptance. And so... Here we are. I know we talked a lot about, about a lot of things, but we're naked and ashamed. What kind of love will actually cover our shame? Right? We're always going to be tempted to make marriage, human love, more important than the God who humbly gives the gift of relationships. Right? So if every person's problem is to turn to the covenant of works to make ourselves lovable, to cover our shame, God sees our problem and says, you can't do it, I have to do it for you. And that's what the, Bible, the rest of the story of the Bible is about. <laughs> the way God works through Jesus to give you a married love like Adam has for Eve. The, the, at last, a husband has for his bride. Right. It's the way the Old Testament talks about it. This is the way God loves his people, right? So if you get to Song of Solomon, that great uh, poetic song about marriage that would make all of us blush if we started reading it out loud. What it's first and foremost about is God's love, his married love for his bride, his people, right? I mean, you read the imagery, it's full of fruit and trees, and it sounds an awful lot like you're back in the garden, Miles Van Pelt, right, one of my professors, says God's married love for his people is white hot 
and rock solid. <laughs> uh, it's the idea of my beloved is mine and I am his, and there is an awful lot of uncomfortable intimacy being described. Even the bride's longing for, for the Lord. Now you get to Hosea, and God says, hey, here's, here's the future. You're going to call me my husband, and I'm going to betroth you to me forever. In, in steadfast love and mercy, I'm going to betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And we're going to dwell together in safety. That's Hosea chapter 2. Isaiah 62 adds to the picture that as a young man marries a young woman, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And he's saying that to people that he has already said, hey, you've broken my heart. You've been spiritually unfaithful. Shame. So how does God do that? How does he give his married love to shame-filled humans? Right. 2,000 years later, Jesus, God caused, causes Jesus, the second Adam, to fall into a deep sleep. It's the sleep of death. Right? And to cover the shame of our sin and our spiritual adultery, what does he do? Right? Jesus does, he isn't falling asleep in a garden. He's falling asleep on a cross, naked, shamed, being mocked, being spat on, and most humiliating for Jesus, who has always had this intimate love with the Father, he's alone. He's experiencing the not good of being alone. The punishment of the curse. That's why God would say, my God, my God. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's Jesus taking our sin the separation from God we deserve so that we might have that married wedding day love. Right. See, if the work of the Lord God in Eden was you know, bringing a man and a woman and they're celebrating at their differences and the beauty that you know, the man is looking at the bride and saying, I can't believe you're mine, you're like me, but we're different. This is fantastic. Jesus Christ, from before the foundation of the world, knowing the pain that his people would cause him, looks at his bride and says, I'm going to become bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, fully human, and I'm going to die. And because of the cross and resurrection, I can look at you and say, at last, you're mine. Right? He's our helpmeet, our easer. He's the one who lives the life we should have lived, dies the death we should have died, and then equips us so that we might love as he has loved. And since the cross is like marriage vows, if you will, right, there's a transaction. This is a really good illustration of what happened. That Jesus, our bridegroom, what he does, right, this, is, this is what happens when you get married. What, what you have becomes your spouse, and what your spouse has becomes yours. Right? And so what is our bridegroom's? What belongs to Jesus? Perfection. Intimacy with God. Uh, his loveliness, right? that now becomes ours. We get clothed, our shame is clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's part of the marriage package. Right? What does Jesus get? Well, what do we bring? Our debt? <laughs> He's got to forgive us. 
We bring our shame. He's got to cover our shame. And he, on the cross, you see him paying that, taking, making that transaction in order to make us radiant and pure. And all that provision of grace to make us lovely in God's sight comes from the pure side of Jesus, the bet, true and better Adam. See, to be a Christian is to be clothed in Christ's righteousness and receive the gift of God's wedding day delight in us, even though we don't deserve it. That we, the unlovable, are shamelessly loved by our faithful bridegroom, Jesus. And this is what's going, this is the place we're called to go whenever you feel ashamed. And this is the place where God wants every human being to go, no matter who you are, to come and find your shame healed at the foot of the cross. And so, do you know what it means to have Jesus love you with an everlasting bridegroom? Love. Because if you have that, every other love is going to pale in comparison. So one, you get the idea that Jesus has cleaved himself to you, even to death on a cross. And then the result is you turn around and say, if he has loved me like that, what other loves do I need to let go of in order to get that love? And every Christian in the history of the world says, it doesn't matter what it is, I'm willing to get back into the Garden of Eden to have someone love me like that. That he fully knows me and he loves me despite who I am and swears I will stay by your side until I change you. That's the kind of married relationship you walk into with Jesus. The only way you would ever want to change the way you think about love, relationships, marriage, all this stuff we're floating around in 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 our culture, right? You gotta taste this kind of love. It's it's better than unconditional love. Because unconditional love says, I'm just gonna accept you no matter what you do. But God doesn't accept us just as I am. He loves me despite how I am, and He loves me just as Jesus is. And he loves me enough to stay by my side until I learn to love as he loves me. And he swears I will never leave nor forsake you. Spiritual divorce is never on the table for the Christian. You get to hear our heavenly spouse, Jesus, say, nothing in all of creation will separate you from my love. So do do you know what it's like to have that love? I mean, you can keep going if, and start mixing metaphors here. If Jesus is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, he's human like us. He knows exactly what it feels like to be human, but without sin. Because we have a high priest who's also our bridegroom, who's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. In all of our afflictions, he's afflicted. He, he nourishes and cares for the church, us, the way he cares for his own body. He's, he's paying attention to you in ways your human spouse can't do. And so, all that to say, (laughs) whatever it is you are most deeply ashamed of, Genesis 2 is saying, hey, the story of the Bible is going to be about a wedding. And you need to start learning how to tell yourself the true story of how Jesus is marrying the church. And if I'm part of the church, that's my story. And let God's delight in his bride, who is not perfect, start to heal your shame. This is the most freeing thing in the world to come out 
and say out loud the ugliest thing you've ever done or thought or wished you did and have that person say, I am not going to leave you ever. So, what's the purpose of all this? And this is our conclusion here. As you have your shame covered, what is the purpose of God giving Eve to Adam? Uh, to fill the earth with other images of God. Right? And so the way Jesus does it, right? God gives the church to Jesus to work together to fill the earth to make disciples who have had their shame covered. Right? To go to go out into the world having your shame covered and say, let's tell other people, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will not find a better feast. Where the unlovable, the unlovely, are all welcomed in, no matter who they are, what they've done. Right? And so that's the mission that we're a part of, to go out and invite others to the wedding day feast. When we get to the end, we'll toast our bridegroom's love and grace and on that day, there will be nothing to be ashamed of. And on that great day, you'll never be alone. Ever. And that will be heaven on the new earth. You'll be shameless, clothed in Christ's righteousness. And the Bible describes that reality as a, as a marriage where each day <laughs> seems to be better than the day that comes before. And that's a reality worth fighting for. So do you know the wedding day delight of Jesus? Run to the cross. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would give us a taste of what it means to be loved, known, delighted in, despite who we are, and that as we have our shame covered, uh, we would see how then to, to cover others' shame, to say to them, we love you, we're still going to be friends, and we're not going to leave you alone. And so I pray that the gospel that we just heard this morning uh, would shape our church to be a safe place for people who are deeply ashamed to come find the freedom and the reality of what it means to, to hear you say to us, there is no condemnation right now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So may your grace set us free to love others in Jesus' name. Amen.